Well, I'm excited about that. That's super easy. Thank you, David, for running through that with us. Um, Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in. Lord, I just thank you for um, this people. I thank you for um, your presence here with us, Lord, and I ask that you would bless us in this time as we just look at your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. Amen. Um, So we're continuing our our participate series, right? Asking him, how do we participate with God? And um, today we're talking about how God's called us to be servants, um, how God's called us to service. So the the text that kind of captured my imagination as I was thinking about this was Matthew chapter 20. Um, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. And um, Michelle, could I have you switch these slides for me on just this scripture reading? And I'm just going to read with my Bible in hand. Um, Yeah, so here, let me see. I'll move us. There we go. If you'll just switch those for us. All right, Matthew chapter 20, beginning uh, verse 20 down to 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus calling them together said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So just before this this story, Jesus has now for the third time said, we're on our way to Jerusalem. When we get there, the Son of Man, that's referring to himself, will be delivered over to the the rulers of the Jews and um, condemned to death, handed over to the Gentiles when he'll be mocked, flogged, crucified, and then on the third day he'll rise again. And they don't seem to be connecting the dots that um, things are not going to be good once we get to Jerusalem. They think we're about to storm the city or something. And so um, they're just not really hearing this. There's a a story of a guy who uh, was at his... Uh, a checkup with his doctor, and he said afterwards, hey, hey, doctor, I'm, I'm a little concerned about my wife. I, I feel like she might be having the onset of some early hearing loss, but I think she's a little sensitive about this, so like, what would you recommend? How can I try to figure this out? And he said, yeah, I, I would just recommend, you know, um, walk into a room uh, with her, and if her back's to you, maybe about 15 feet away, just asking her a question in a normal volume voice. He said, all right, great. So that night he goes home and he, his wife is, um, you know, making dinner. Um, she's at the counter, her back's to him, and about 15 feet away he says, hey, babe, what's for dinner? No response. Uh-oh. And he takes, you know, a few steps closer. Hey, babe, what's for dinner? Again, no response. Oh, no. So now he's about five feet away and says, hey, babe, what's for dinner? She whips around and says, three times I told you, Chicken. 
Now, it's not that the disciples aren't hearing anything Jesus is saying. They're more suffering from a case of selective hearing. So they're hearing some things. They're not hearing Jesus say that I'm about to die, I'm about to be tortured, you're going to be scattered, all that stuff. But they are hearing other things. So Jesus in the previous chapter has just said, you 12 are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And guess what? They heard that. So that's what's on their mind right now, is that thing that Jesus just said. Um, And in that story in Matthew 19, just the chapter before, what's happened is this rich uh, Jewish ruler has come to Jesus, and he said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus discerns that he is in love with his possessions, and so he says to him, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. And the guy is too in love with his possessions to do that. So he goes away sad. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that, bl- that busts all of their boxes because the disciples bought into the contemporary Jewish mindset at the time that if someone was a worshiper of God and they were wealthy, that meant they were blessed and favored by God. And so the text shows how blown away they are by this. It says they were astonished at this teaching, and they say, well, then who can be saved? I mean, if if wealthy God worshipers can't be saved, how can anyone be saved? And they say, well, I mean, we've left everything to follow you. And then Jesus says, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne in the new world, you'll sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he goes on to say, that many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And they interpret that in a way that requires nothing about their lives to change. They interpret that to mean that the wealthy in this world now will be at the bottom of the totem pole in the new world, and that the poor in this world now will all be at the top of the totem pole in the new world. And they're thinking, well, this is good news because we're flat broke. We left everything to follow Jesus. Um, And they're sitting there going, yeah, okay, great. This is not what I thought, how I thought things worked, but I I couldn't agree more, Jesus. One day, we'll stick it to those rich and powerful snobs. And there will be the rich and powerful snobs. This is kind of their mindset, right? And so they're like, great idea, Jesus. I, I couldn't agree more. But... As, as we continue reading, we can see that they're, they're not really, uh, Matthew's trying to show us that they're not really understanding um, what Jesus means by greatness, what Jesus means by being first in the kingdom. Again, they're suffering from this case of selective hearing, right? They're not able to discern what that means because they're hearing these words in a way that requires nothing about their lives to change. We do this, brothers and sisters. When Jesus invites us into something, he's inviting us to look more like him, which often means looking a little less like you, as we are called to conform to his image, not him to ours. And this is what Jesus is trying to press upon them in this passage. So we have these two brothers, James and John, right? These sons of Zebedee, as they're called. And they um, come to Jesus, and I I think they just kind of have this, like, go big or go home mentality. 
That's kind of my, my vibe with them. And their request to sit at Jesus' right and left hand in the, in the new world, um, these places of power and prominence, it's not entirely presumptuous, right? Because Jesus has recently said to the 12, you'll sit in these 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're thinking, why not ask for the best seats? Right? I mean, you have not because you ask not. So they come to Jesus and they, they ask this of him. And, you know, there's another uh, account in the Gospels where James and John, they're all with Jesus. They go to a Samaritan village. Maybe you remember the story. Um, the Samaritan village rejects Christ. And so James and John come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, let's smoke them. Right now, you call fire down from heaven, let's just roast them all. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. Like, you guys got a bad spirit right now. That's kind of, they're, they're kind of the ask, uh, shoot first, ask questions later disciples, I think. They're actually the only ones that Jesus uh, gives a nickname to, which I think is, a, in their case, maybe a dubious honor. Um, you know, Jesus renamed Peter, but he gave these guys a nickname, and they were his little sons of thunder, is what he called them. I added the word little, a little to patronize a little bit. All right. So I guess at some point, they're strategizing, right? They're in their strategy session. How do we get the best seats? And I, I suppose at some point they think, well, we've got to bring in the big gun. So like many young desperate men, they go to mom. So they, they go and find Mama Zebedee, and they say, come to bat for me uh, and my brother so we can get these best seats, right? Um, to make things a little bit more complicated, elsewhere in the Gospels, um, James and John's mother is uh, identified as a woman named Salome. And, she, and Salome is identified as the sister of the mother of Jesus, Mary. Which means that this woman is, in fact, Jesus' aunt. And which also means that James and John are, in fact, Jesus' first cousins. So James and John, you know, they may be against the rich and privileged having all the power in the new world, but they don't seem to be against some good old-fashioned nepotism. Praise God. <laughs> so, we come, so in this story, they come to Jesus. And in all fairness to Salome, um, she gets on her knees, right? I mean, her, quest, her request is quite bold, but she gets on her knees. And so now Jesus has got his aunt on her knees, down on her knees, begging for her uh, two sons, her, her, his cousins. And Jesus, interestingly, uh, just turns and addresses James and John because he, he knows they put her up to this. In fact, in Mark's gospel, she's not even mentioned. They just asked Jesus for these seats. And so he, he turns to James and John, and he says, uh, you don't know what you're asking. Um, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Jesus. We can drink the cup of suffering. No pain, no gain, Jesus. We knew what we signed up for when we signed up for this world domination thing. Um, I came across this this last week. Um, <laughs> you don't, if you can see it, it says, overconfidence, this is going to end in disaster, and you have no one to blame but yourself. Um, I think this is kind of James and John. They're like, th I think they think that the no pain, no game is this road to glory, basically, through conquest and domination. It's really persecution, scattering, public reproach, and all the rest. Um, so Jesus says, okay, actually, you will. You will drink my cup. 
Um, and both James and John would share in the sufferings of Christ. In fact, James would be the first apostle to die for Jesus. You can read about that in Acts chapter 12. And John, on the other hand, would live a long life, uh, but he would experience persecution, um, exile to Patmos. In fact, Pastor Bart showed us pictures of his traditional cell recently, and he would finally die a martyr as well. Um, but as for the one who's going to sit at the right and left hand, Jesus says, that's for my father to decide. Um, it's not my call. They've never been further from the kingdom than in this moment by seeking to make themselves first. And in doing so, they're really making themselves last. And I think about that. I think, how, how different are we? Um, how many times do we do this? How many times um, when this life is over and God recounts our deeds, will we realize that for all our confidence, we were never further from the kingdom than in that moment, or in that moment, or in that moment. When we thought the kingdom was about something that it simply was not about. When we thought the kingdom of God was more about our power and control. Let me read you this story by Eugene Peterson. He uh, tells the story of this childhood bully that he encountered in first grade named Garrison Johns says, about the third day after entering first grade, Garrison discovered me and took me on as his project for the year. He gave me a working knowledge of what 25 years later Richard Niebuhr would give me a more sophisticated understanding of, the tension between Christ and culture. I had been taught in Sunday school not to fight, and so I'd never learned to use my fists. I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, bless those who persecute you, and turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me, some sixth sense bullies possess, I suppose, but he picked me for his sport. Most afternoons after school, he would catch me and beat me up. He also found out that I was a Christian and taunted me with Jesus sissy. I tried finding alternate ways home by making do tours through alleys, but he stalked me and always found me. I arrived home most afternoons bruised and humiliated. My mother told me this had always been the way of Christians in the world, and I better get used to it. I was supposed to pray for him. The Bible verses that I memorized, blessed and turned, began to get tiresome. I loved going to school. I was learning a lot, finding new friends, adoring my teacher. The classroom was a wonderful place. But after the dismissal bell, I had to face Garrison Johns, get my daily beating that I was supposed to assimilate as my blessing. March came. I remember that it was March by the weather. The winter snow was melting, but there were still patches of it here and there. The days were getting longer. I was no longer walking home in late afternoon dark, and then something unexpected happened. I was in my neighborhood, I was, I was with my neighborhood friends on this day, seven or eight of them, when Garrison caught up with us and started in on me, jabbing and taunting, working himself up for the main event. He had an audience, and that helped. He always did better with an audience. That's when it happened. Totally uncalculated, totally out of character, something snapped within me. For just a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I realized that I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, and pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless under me, at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fist. It felt good, and I hit him again. Blood spurred from his nose, a lovely crimson on the snow. 
By this time, all the other children were cheering, egging me on. Black his eyes, bust his teeth. A torrent of biblical invective poured from them, although nothing compared to what I would later in life read in the Psalms. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood, more cheering. Now my audience was bringing the best out of me. And then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. <laughs> he wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. I tried again. Say I believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. <laughs> D.A. Carson says this, The lust for power very often reflects our desire to control others. Even when, this desires, even when we think this is for their good, and sometimes it is, though not nearly as often as we'd like to think, this desire to control people is very difficult to distinguish from lack of love of neighbor. It is almost impossible to disentangle from our desire to play God, which is a breach of the first commandment. And I think this is so profound. The more power we exercise over others, and the less power others have over us, the more we judge ourselves to be, quote, free. You know, we Christians have not usually handled power well when we've called the shots. Secular society is tired of Christians calling the shots. And guess what? They're judging themselves to be more free from us as they gain power. This isn't a new sentiment, by the way. Um, the 18th century French philosopher Denis Diderot said, man will never be free until we strangle the last king with the entrails of the last priest. I think that um, secular Americans look at evangelical Americans, and they see a people who want to lord something over them. What if instead of a passion to rule, they saw in us a passion to serve? What if that's how the lost perceived us? Oh, that's the sect of society who serves us. I think many evangelicals today are mourning the loss of political power and cultural dominance that Christianity once enjoyed in this nation, the Christian America that once was. Maybe with less power to Lord, we might better hear the call to serve our coworkers, our classmates, our neighbors. Maybe that's the message of Matthew chapter 20 to the Church of America. I suggest to you that it is. You know, we can probably assume that James and John um, had every intention to be benevolent judges at Jesus' right and left hand, right? I mean, we'd enforce God's ways. Putting us in charge and over people would be in their best interest, whether they know it or not, like Carson is suggesting. I mean, we wouldn't be like our Gentile overlords, the Romans. Put, give, you know, the more power we have over others and the less power others have over us, the more we judge ourselves to be free. It's basically what they're saying, right? And they fail to see the... Is that me? Oh, is it coming out? Ooh. We good? 
I'll continue. So they fail to see. <laughs> Should I just, here, I'll just grab a handheld. Yeah, I think your cord is coming, okay. coming on screen. So I think this is fascinating to me that they're in this place where they clearly think they would be God's gift to the world, right? Um, put us in charge, and it's in everyone's best interest. And the irony to me is this is all happening while they're staging this power grab with mom, and the other ten disciples aren't in earshot, right? And so Jesus comes to them, and he has to spell it out for them, literally, and for us. It shall not be so among you. I mean, he could not make it more clear, I don't think. Um, it shall not be so among you. You're acting like the very Gentile overlords you despise. You're acting like the very political group that you feel oppressed by. Let's be honest, y'all. <laughs> I don't know if you guys think about this. I think about this. The kingdom of God is much less appealing than you and I think it is. It challenges our notions of power, authority, greatness, rule. We say we want the kingdom of God, but we need to take a bath. We smell a lot more like the world than we know. Gabriel, that kind of hurts. Kind of hurts my feelings too. Um, why am I preaching the text like this? I guess I'm preaching the text like this because a, a text like this one is so applicable to evangelicals like us. Because in this moment, James and John smell like Caesar. They smell like the very centurions they hate. And yet, they have all the right belief boxes checked, right? Jesus is Messiah. He's coming again to establish the new world. We'll follow him anywhere. We'll drink the cup of his sufferings. And yet their hearts are every bit as power-hungry as the Gentiles they despise. And so we read in verse 24 again. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. How dare they? But Jesus called them all together, right? And he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must become your servant. Powerful words, right? <laughs> Cutting words. My friends, it shall not be so among you. Those seven words, it shall not be so among you, I think they come as I read it, both as a rebuke and as an invitation. It's a rebuke that reaches back to moments like those in the garden when Adam and Eve took the fruit with the serpent's promise that they would become like God, lured by these delusions of greatness. It's a rebuke that confronts our lust for freedom from all constraints, because that's how we define freedom. It's a rebuke uh, to exploit those underneath us. I think it's also an invitation. It's an invitation not to become gods, but to become Christ-like, 
It's an invitation to discover greatness as defined by Jesus. It's an invitation to acknowledge that your lust for power and control and my lust for power and control very often says more about our fears than our faith. It's an invitation not to exploit, but to serve. Can you drink my cup? Jesus is asking them and asking us. I heard a story one time from a a pastor friend of mine named Anton, and he's in his late 60s now. He uh, was probably in his 40s at this time. I think by that he's saying, I wouldn't have done this then, but it's still an awesome story. And he was teaching at a Bible college at the time, and there was this spiritual formation week that was going on. The first chapel, they had chapel all week, and the first chapel, they had a guest speaker, and the guest speaker opened up the message and said, today the title of my sermon is The Virtues of Godly Competition. And he gave his sermon. The next day, Anton was the chapel speaker, and he stood up and said, Today, the title of my sermon is The Heresy of Godly Competition. He got a slap on the wrist for that, but he didn't regret it. (laughs) He later said, There's nothing in the Bible that would suggest that brothers and sisters are in competition with each other. We are allies at war. That's the bottom line. I mean, when Jesus' disciples said, hey, these guys are baptizing in your name, but they're not a part of us, so they're not a part of Jesus Ministries International. Should we, like, shut them down? And Jesus says, no, they're not, they're not against us. They're for us. Come on. You know, one of the things that I appreciate um, about Pastor Bart is he doesn't see himself in competition with pastors in this city. Um, when I was in conversation with the elders about coming on here at Fullness, um, it mattered to Bart and the elders that they weren't pulling me away from the church that I was leaving. And that really spoke to me. Um, It mattered that I had the blessing of the, the pastor whose church I left. Jesus calls us to something higher than is modeled in the world, which is often competitive, cutthroat, and self promoting. And Jesus is trying to show James and John. And now these 10 offended other disciples another way. He's showing us another way. Tim Keller uh, tells this story about a woman that was coming to his church and visiting. And she uh, would, you know, sit through, through the messages and always, he could tell she was engaged, interested, but she would always jet out at the end of the message. And so one day he decided to kind of catch her on the way out and he said, uh, hey, it's, it's uh, great to have you. And, and she said, yeah, I don't know if I believe everything that you guys uh, say, but I'm intrigued. And he said, uh, yeah, that, that's great. Uh, how'd you hear about Redeemer? And she, she tells him the story. So she moved to New York City where uh, Tim Keller was pastoring, and she moved there to take a, a job at a major networking uh, television um, network. And uh, she very early on made this bad mistake, a, a, a career-ending mistake. And she just assumed, all right, that's it. I'm out. I'm going to get the axe. And um, her boss went in and took the blame for her. And um, he, he had enough kind of social capital and credibility with his supervisors and with the company. They just all respected him so much that he was able to save her job. And he just went in and said, hey, I didn't train her. Um, I didn't prepare her for what was coming. If you're going to be mad at anyone, be mad at me. 
And so they took him in his word that he failed. And he lost credibility in the company, but saved her job. And so she came to his office and said, like, thank you so much for doing that. Why did you do that? And he said, oh, and it's nothing. Don't, don't worry about it. And she said, no, no, no. Like, I mean, I've had bosses take the credit for work I've done. That's happened all the time. I've never had a boss take the blame for something I did wrong. You took the blame. Why did you do that? And he said, no, don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And she said, no, that, that's not human nature. Why did you do that? And he's, she kept pressing him and finally he said, okay, I'm going to say this once, but you pushed me to this. I'm a Christian. And my whole life is based on the belief that one man took the blame for me. And I try to do the same in my life. Karl Barth, who's my favorite theologian, said this, because Jesus is the servant of God, he is the servant of all men, of the whole world, not come to be ministered unto, but to minister. I love this. He is the man in the parable who, when invited to a wedding, did not take the chief place, but the lower. He did the very opposite of what James and John are asking, right? (laughs) So some of you may say, um, Gabriel, everything you're saying is cute. But I got to tell you, it doesn't work in the real world. I mean, if I took the blame for what people did, I'd stay at the bottom of the totem pole the whole time. If I served my enemies, they'd crucify me. You're probably right. That's what they did to Jesus. Um, You know, I think about that moment on the cross where Jesus is there, the rulers are mocking him, and they say, he saved others. Like, they acknowledge that Jesus served and saved and ministered to people. That's not what makes them lose respect for Jesus, right? He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Messiah, right? They could not imagine a Messiah that didn't use his power in self-promoting ways. Like, that was beyond their mindset, right? Surely, I mean, if you are the Messiah, like, come down from the cross, right? Eugene Peterson's childhood bully mocked the same thing when he took his beatings and called him Jesus sissy. But if Jesus didn't even turn stones into bread to feed himself when he was hungry in the wilderness, he wasn't going to come down from the cross to end his suffering and assert his power. Think about this. Jesus never made a show of power unless it was in the service to someone else. He never made a show of power in service to himself. Think about that. That was just touching my heart this week. You know, if I was Jesus, I'd have shot fireworks out of my hands. I'd have written, Jesus is Messiah in the clouds, right? I certainly would have turned stones into bread to feed myself if I was hungry. Like, what's so bad about that? Right? Um, Certainly would have done that. You know, every miraculous show of power was an act of love in service to someone who needed something. Whether that something be healing or deliverance 
or sustenance or truth. Every time. He multiplied bread in order to feed 5,000 hungry people. He turned water into wine in order to, at a wedding in order to save the host family the shame of running out. He calmed the storm in order to save his disciples' lives. They're about to die. Um, he cleansed the rotting bodies of lepers to end their pain and restore them to society. He helped Peter pay his taxes by sending him to find the money he needed in the mouth of a fish. Some of you guys may need that miracle this tax season. The point is this. Everything Jesus did was in service to another. He never used his power in service to himself. The only possible exception I was able to think of as I was thinking about that was the moment Jesus walked on water, right, in front of the 12 disciples. So they're out in the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus begins taking a stroll on the water. And at first glance, it doesn't seem that Jesus is, um, you know, doing something that is ministering unto them, right? He's just walking on water. And I would say that, was tr that would be true if Jesus just walked around the water in a second and looked awesome and then hopped in the boat, right? But that's not what happened, is it? Something in me tells me that Jesus knew that Peter would cry, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. Now, I just imagine this slight twinkle in Jesus' eye when he said, come. Peter walked on water all the way from the boat to where Jesus was standing out in the waves until he fixed his eyes on the waves and began to sink. And as he sank, he cried, Lord, save me. And Jesus' arm met Peter's and pulled him out of the water. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Even this miracle was more than a show of power, wasn't it? By walking on the water, Jesus was serving Peter, showing him what faith he had, showing him what faith he lacked, giving him the testimony of crying, Lord, save me. Giving him the testimony of being pulled out of the waves. A memory I think probably stuck with Peter the rest of his life, no doubt. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you know him? How many times have you cried out, Lord, save me? And he did. How many times has your faith gotten you out of the boat and you went places with Jesus only to lose your faith there and then be found by the strong arm of Jesus? And then like the disciples, when Jesus got in the boat, you worshiped and said, truly, you are the son of God. You know, if we hear this message and all you hear or I hear is we need to surrender our lust for power and we need to serve, which this text is saying that. But if that's all we hear in this passage, then we fail to hear the gospel that is dripping off the page. You are the one for whom Christ gave his life. You are the one Christ serves. He's serving you all the time, speaking to you the truth, the truth about yourself, the truth about the world, 
the truth about the Father. He's serving you all the time, leading you to places that build your faith, saving you there. He's serving you all the time, healing you with grace, loving you with patience, reaching into your insecurities and speaking identity to you. He's serving you all the time, making intercession for you when the devil asks to sift you like wheat, finding you when you've gone astray. He's serving you all the time, leading you by streams of still waters, restoring your soul. He's serving you all the time, exposing your sin, loving you there, calling you higher. He's worthy. He's good. If, in fact, if Christ stopped serving us, we would be lost to ourselves. And that is the last place you want to be. But he paid the ransom price in blood. The ransom that redeems from slavery the one who believes. Let me end with these words from the end of the passage, 27 and 28. And whoever would be first among you must be, be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus um, has just said that the person who wishes to be great in the kingdom must become a slave to others. And this is remarkable, given the fact that the Greek word translated ransom was used at the time to describe the price paid for the redemption of slaves. So the point of the text is this. Jesus gave his life to redeem us from slavery. Slavery to sin and slavery to death. But then he does something quite unexpected. Rather than telling these ransomed former slaves to run free and pursue life, liberty, and happiness— he says, if you really want to be free, if you really want to be great, you'll become a slave again. You'll see your freedom as a means to serve others, to become their slave, as it were. This is greatness in the kingdom, answering the call to be a servant. This is what James and John don't get yet, as they crave these seats of power but I think they do, ultimately. In fact, I think John does, certainly, when I read verses that he wrote, like 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, <laughs> and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We've been served. We've been loved. Um, are Emory and Debbie Brawley here? I don't think they are. We were at the adoption um, of their grandson, Andrew, this week at the courtroom, several of us from Fullness, and it was really beautiful. And I'm just so, it was so beautiful to see the way they've answered the call of God. You know, if I were to guess, um, this is not how they imagined these years of their life. <laughs> um, but they have answered the call to God to adopt their grandson and love and serve. Um, that's maybe a big example, but what are the ways that God has given you opportunities to be a servant in parenting, in work, in life? Where are you answering the call, hearing the call to be a servant? 
Um, this is my, my benediction to you, and, and then we'll be done. As you lead in some areas of your life, and as you seek to serve others, remember that you have been led, and you have been served by the Son of God himself. See the ways he leads you. See the ways he serves you. See it in the day-to-day, and live it in the day-to-day. God, I thank you for this message. I thank you for these words from Matthew 20. Lord, I ask that they would be more than just words spoken in a room, but Holy Spirit, you would lead us, guide us, give us grace, give us strength, God, to see what greatness looks like in your kingdom. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Bless you guys. Have a wonderful day in the Lord.
Just sing out a new song today.